Hello family, I'm Theo Hill and welcome back to One Day at a Time in Recovery in Baltimore. This is a podcast where I talk one-on-one with other folks like me who are dealing with their own addiction and recovery. We listen and learn together from each other's stories. And listeners, we're still recording the podcast here at my dining room table in my home where I have three lovely granddaughters, so you might hear a little noise in the background from time to time. Welcome to my home. This episode, I would like to introduce a very distinguished gentleman who I've come to be friends with. His name is Bill. Welcome, Bill. Thank you, Theo. It's a pleasure. When did you get involved with substances and... um, where did your addiction take you? First off, uh, my name is Bill, and I am an addict. Um, and this is actually a departure for me. You just explain to me the format of this. And uh, and usually in recovery, what I've learned over the years is is I don't go a lot back into my story. Pretty much in 1994 is my first introdu- introduction to a 12-step fellowship. And I didn't spend a lot of time, even with the step work, going back and really delving into. So this is a different format. Um, and I will try to, if I can remember, um, and there's nothing really to forget. I hear a lot of people that come in talking about a lot of abuse, um, and things like that, that they had to deal with. And that was not the case for me. I, I was born in Baltimore. I was born at St. Agnes hospital. Uh, I grew up at Baltimore Highlands. If anybody's familiar with Baltimore Highlands, it's mm-hmm. a, a two lane road that runs across some low income housing. And then, uh, and then the way I explain it in the rooms is, again, from the very first time I used around 14, 13, or 14, um, it made more sense to use than to not use. It was just that simple. It wasn't born out of anything. It didn't come from anything. There wasn't any trauma to speak of. Um, I do recall the first time my sister took me to a party. She threatened me that if I embarrassed her, because she was two years older and she was very popular, she threatened that if I embarrassed her, that she'd never take me again. And the next morning when I woke up, after really not remembering much of what happened from drinking, she was sitting at the end of the bed laughing, just talking about how funny I was, what a great Mm -hmm. night it was, how much fun she had with me. And again, these small instances i don't know what role they played i never dove into or cared to delve into but again with me from the very first time it made more sense to be high playing golf to be high on the baseball field to be high in math class to be high when i went home with my sister to watch general hospital um after after mm-hmm. school it just always made sense um and then very early on uh mad dog 2020 before school and again, I don't know why. It just, it just, it just. Uh, I've come to grips with the fact that that's the thing that lives inside of me. So it doesn't matter as much to me why. Uh, what it matters now is is how you know how I stay clean. How do I stop that? And realizing that that is me, and that there's no way around that. And that was right. a big thing in recovery for me. It's just realizing there is no way to substitute anything for that there's no way to get around it that's just a fact there's a lot of facts in life i think everybody not just addicts have to face and that's the i mean that's the primary one for me Mm -hmm. is i cannot use a substance without that substance taking over everything um and that's the way it's been for a long time i came around the rooms for a long time and i heard people talk about the good old days and back when it was fun so I adopted that, I uh, think, that, uh, that way of talking and even that story of back mm-hmm. when it was fun. But uh, because we're doing this format, I'll tell you, my consequences 
came early. They came early and they came often. And, uh, and that's when it was fun. I mean, I was in jail by the time I was 18. Mm -hmm. I was expelled from school three times prior to that before reaching 18. I never finished high school as a result of that. Um, each time for drug-related offenses, uh, violence-related offenses over protecting the drugs I had, whatever it was. It's just, and again, I don't think I wasn't a badass. I wasn't. I just was always going to carry what I had with me. And if you try to take it or, you know, again, so my entire life revolved around that substance from the very first time that I used those substances. It gave me purpose and it gave me direction. Mm -hmm. I was going to get high. I was going to do what I had to do to make the money to get high. Mm -hmm. I was going to sell what I could to keep getting high. And, and that became my purpose and direction for a long time. Um, and then at 24 years old, I had gone through a period of time where I had tried running when I got home from work. So I was so tired I had to go to sleep. I had went through a period of time... Uh, not really churches or anything like that, but, but you know, like seeking out some kind of religious answer or, you know, not anything formal, but I was just looking for something. Mm -hmm. And uh, and I walked into my, sorry to jump to it so fast, but I walked into my, it's really where my life began. From, uh, from my childhood, I had a wonderful childhood, from wonderful parents, from a lot of sports, being coached by my father, all those wonderful memories. But from 13, 14, those memories are all, run parallel to me getting mm -hmm. high mm -hmm. um and at 24 i walked into the rooms of narcotics anonymous and uh i hear a lot of people talk about they didn't buy in they didn't believe uh, these people can't be clean you know nobody i saw some people that i had used with i saw some people that i had ran with real mm -hmm. early on at that first meeting i went to and something was different um one girl in particular was uh was married she had uh, i think uh six months and i had lost track of her it was like where did rose go i don't mm -hmm. know where rose is you know i was worried about rose and rose was in the program and rose had gotten married and rose had a, a, a two and a half year old baby running around this beautiful young girl and she wasn't talking about the things we used to talk about she wasn't doing the things and she looked fantastic and those instances of watching other people i guess i was lucky like that uh, i was very lucky let me back up because because there is another part of the story that growing up i was very always very lucky i grew up in catonsville from the time i was i guess uh i guess i moved there when i was uh six or seven mm -hmm. uh, maybe eight and uh the epic house was right there in catonsville and the first time i went to drug counseling there i was 15 years old but if you don't know or if people on this podcast and the little history of baltimore is is narcotics anonymous on the west side started mm -hmm. at in 1983 started at the epic house and as a 15 year old kid or 16 year old kid going there for counseling uh, i remember seeing it i didn't know what it was i had no idea what it was you know the the guys were all bikers and mm -hmm. and rough looking uh there was a couple brunettes with really tight black pants on and i liked that so it, even at 16 i was attracted to this thing i saw even though I had no idea what right, it was. Right. So I was very lucky that uh, all those years later, at 24 years old, when uh, I went away to my first rehab that I took seriously, and I walked into uh, or came home to go to a meeting, I knew where to go. And I went to that Epic House. And, uh, and there was no meeting. They had meetings there every night of the week except Thursday. That's the night I showed up. But a gentleman named Baltimore Bill picked me up he actually yelled out the window Are you looking for a meeting i said yeah he said come with me and he took me to christ the king church out in woodlawn mm -hmm. and i sat next to a guy named josh and the 
husband of Rose was celebrating one year, Rodney. And uh, there's no nice way to say it. All three of those gentlemen are now deceased. Okay. Um, but that was my first meeting. The first meeting as I, I got a ride there from Baltimore Bill, I sat next to Josh and I listened to Rodney celebrate his first year and I watched his family be so happy for him and Rose be so mm-hmm. happy for him. And I saw Rose and that's where I kind of started to buy into what was possible. Um, and then from there I did what was, what was suggested. I, I didn't know what I was doing, but I knew my way didn't work. Everything I had tried didn't work. And, uh, and I did see something was, was different. And, uh, and I got a network. And, you know, we were all just a bunch of newcomers. Right. And we listened to the people with time that had experience. But for the, right. most, for the most part, we were just hanging the hell on just every day. There was four or five of us. Then there were six or seven of us. And then two of us would drop off and stop showing up and stop coming. And then there was a couple, you know, people that had been around for a little bit longer. And they started to see that we were serious. And they started to join the conversation. And... Uh, but I look back at it, and I always say this, is, is if they had joined the conversation prior to that, they were talking about, like, buying houses and cutting their lawn, and I didn't want to talk about that. I didn't know how right. to talk about that right. stuff. So, uh, so looking back, it happened just the way it was supposed to happen. And now I see and I realize it's one of my favorite things to see and realize, and maybe somebody out there who doesn't understand that uh, I still hang around with a bunch of drug addicts. I still hang around with a bunch of people just like me. I hang around with the same people I've always enjoyed hanging around. We're just all trying to do something different. And I watched these people um, lives change. And I watched and heard what they were talking about. And I sat in a lot of step studies. I didn't know what the hell they were talking about. And I volunteered for service. And, uh, and I became secretary at my home group. And I think three months in, I was secretary in the meeting, and and I was so happy to be secretary of the meeting. It was the first meeting, and I was still a little, uh, you know, I'm not going to say violent. I still had anger issues at that period of time, and I just distinctly remember I had gone through the books in front of me, and I called the uh, the little white book, the original, it was, it, which it now, mm-hmm. it, the man was right. He said, I said the condensed version of the of the basic text, and he chimed out during the meeting and said, that's the original, and I literally almost went over the table at this guy because how dare you um Mm -hmm. correct me while i'm up here doing such a good job and again it just goes to the mindset of of where i was where you was at that time right which also goes to the mindset of when i first started writing i mean at 24 years old my entire outlook on life was wrong um every way the way that i looked at everything I i remember very distinctly I lived with my father. He was the last one in my family that could, could tolerate anything that I was doing, the last one that, uh, that would enable anything that I was doing. And I remember very distinctly the thought patterns. It's not, see, it's not the events that I look back at. Even now when I do step work and I go, and I go mm-hmm. back and I look at a lot of that stuff, it's the thought patterns behind it. It's the behavior behind it. And I remember very distinctly this was, again, it's funny and it's almost embarrassing to talk about now at 51 years old, but I remember very distinctly if he would just leave me alone, let me, mm. let me drive his car, let me live in his house, let me eat his food, but if he would just leave me alone, and I really believed if he would just leave me be, I would be okay. Let me steal his money mm-hmm. when mine was gone, all these things. I couldn't have functioned in the world without him. And, and, it, and I just remember, go, and I go back to that a lot on how badly I was thinking about that situation. And I say that because... 
that's to me is part of the disease of addiction is the way I look at things, yes. the way I process things. Yes. And it's still prevalent today. So it's, uh, they talk about humility a lot. That if that's part of the, the, the disease of addiction, it's something I have to say and, and honestly say is still with me now. That I will look at a situation and one of the practices I have today, one of the most useful practices I have today is to do nothing for a period of time. When I get a bad idea, I got pretty good. When I got a bad idea, like, eh, you don't want to do it. Just, just wait a couple of days and that feeling would pass. What I've learned in the past few years is when I have a good idea, don't do anything either. Let that one pass too. Mm -hmm. Or maybe it actually turns out to be a good idea. Mm -hmm. So again, it's, it's, there's, there's an, a saying in, in our program that you can, uh, that any addict can stop using, lose the desire to use, and find a new way to live. And, uh, and I'll get to that part because that's the part that I never, as much as I bought in, as much as I saw people change, um, I come from a place where I could always pass the test without doing the work. Uh, again, this goes to my way of thinking. I could always get by um, without having to do the work that everybody else had to do. And I brought that same thinking into Narcotics Anonymous, mm -hmm. that same mm -hmm. intrinsic buried uh, emotions. I didn't say it to anybody. I didn't even know there was anything wrong with it. Why, why would there be anything wrong? I get away with it. I don't have to work as hard as you when I get all the rewards you get. That doesn't work for me here. Um, and it took me a long time and a lot of pain to find out that doesn't work for me here. So uh, I bought into the meetings. I bought into the fellowship. I bought into a step work. I championed step work. Somebody would come in with with childhood issues and hear about molestation and the different things that drive somebody's addiction. And I would be the first one in my mind saying, get, get, get a sponsor, start working steps. Meanwhile, I found a way in my mind to listen to the guy that said it's not a race. You know, there's always two ways of, you know, there's the guy over in the corner who's like, work their steps or die. Right. And I remember very distinctly right. my entire first first couple of years, like, what well, that, that guy needs to calm down a little bit. You know, it's, it's I know it was serious, but just... Mm -hmm. And then the next guy would say, hey, it's not a race. Take your time. And all oh, that guy, you know. So I found a way in my mind, in my disease thinking, to think the way that I've always thought, that there would be time and I would get to it. And I spent uh, 12 years here. And uh, when I first got here, I, I met a wonderful woman um, who was shortly thereafter actually was already previously diagnosed with a disease that could not be arrested at some point. And we spent eight years together. In that eight years, I saw this woman, while terminally ill, accomplish things and do things and that still to this day I marvel at. You know, watching, I mean, if you want to, recovery in my life is a beautiful thing. Um, watching recovery in the life of someone you love. Uh, watching someone um, make decisions, even though she knows that she's not going to be here what did she have, cancer? Uh, she was actually HIV positive. Okay. Yeah, I met her at an N.A. dance when I had uh, 60 days clean and uh, fell madly in love with her at uh, 61 days clean. And uh, and I was still madly in love with her at 90 days clean when she told me that she was HIV positive. And, uh, and we had actually relapsed together and were using together at the time that she told me that. And... Within a month, she came down the steps and she said, uh, Bill, I'm going to leave because I was still, I was, again, and my thinking, this is my thinking, mm -hmm. was if I can, mm -hmm. when we relapsed, I'll keep her away from the heroin. We'll just do cocaine and drink because that's my thing. But as long as she's not doing it, we're going to be okay. And within three days, I had a needle in my arm. And because uh, that's, 
That's what that's you do. What I do. Yes, sir. I didn't really didn't believe that, but that's that's what I do. And uh, and within a month, she came down the steps and said, "I still have a resentment towards the person that turned me on to this stuff, and you're going to kill yourself, and I'm not going to sit here and watch it." And she left. And uh, and when she left that day, she left. I couldn't believe she left. And I called my sponsor and said, "Kelly just left. I don't know what to do. I'm hurting." And I went with him to a retreat in Pennsylvania or mm-hmm. West Virginia. I don't know where the hell we went. I just know there was snow and it was a ski resort. And we dipped pretzels in chocolate for two days for some fundraiser they had coming up and bagged up the, you know, and, and that's how I got clean. And, uh, and I came back from that retreat and, uh, and I went to started the entire thing over again. Yeah. And uh, about two weeks later, Kelly called me from, from Florida and said that she had got locked up in Florida. And in that time, I went and got tested. And we talked over the phone for the next week while I waited for the results. And my results came in, and I was negative. And the night that she called and I told her that I was negative, she started crying on the phone. And I realized somewhere in the conversation that she was saying goodbye. And I told her, Kelly, I love you. And, uh, and if, you'll, if you'll come back, I'll send you a bus ticket tomorrow. And... Uh, and she was back two days later. And we spent that day for the next seven years together and clean. And, uh, and, and it was a beautiful thing. We had now, this is for people in relationships with, because uh, a lot of people said it wouldn't work. And they were right to say it wouldn't work. Uh, it just happened, so happened that it does, because I've seen so many times that it doesn't. But we had a very clear understanding that we were never not going to be together. But if one of us used we weren't going to be together. Right. We weren't going to be in the same household. Right. We weren't going to be going right. to the same meetings. Right. We weren't going to be hanging with the same people. Right. We both understood. There's actually a time a year later when uh, I was working with a guy, Clarence. And Clarence was a uh, was a hardwood floor guy. And I was looking for a business. And 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 he had put his tools in Hawk when he was using. And I said, mm-hmm. I'll get your tools out of Hawk. We'll start a business together. I'll get your tools out. And we did that. And, uh, and the day i took the money to go get the tools out of hawk i stopped by the uh i stopped by or i think a week after we got his tools out of hawk and we were working together uh, we got paid on a big job and and he had dropped me off and i went out to the golf course and i played golf all growing up and and it was something i've always loved and i and i played for money so i was on the golf course this was before cell phones and uh, and i got home that afternoon or early evening and Kelly was there, my sponsor was there, and her sponsor was there. Apparently, at some point during the week, I had picked up from the seat of his truck baggies on my pants, and they came into the house. She found those baggies. She had called my sponsor, and as soon as I walked in the door, being that she had used with me before, she knows how I use. She said, let me see the money. And not only did I show her the money I had, but the money I won, and she flew into my arms and wrapped her arms around me, realizing that it was something yeah. other than that. yeah. But I've always remembered that because that day, that theory became a reality. I realized this was a real thing. This is not an option. That this, and I've never been more proud of her. The fact that she was going to leave that day, and uh, and so that's a suggestion to people in, in relationships is to step very clear boundaries. And, and again, I don't know if that'll make the difference. Um, I have sponsees now. I'm not one to ever counsel people not to get in a relationship in recovery because I did. It's not my place. Other people can right. give that advice because right. they've done that and they've had success doing right. it. Mine was I f- happened to find a woman that I now know was heaven sent. And uh, and for a long time, um, I thought that, uh, and I stated that she was uh, heaven sent for me. 
And I now know that uh, if that's true, the opposite's true. We spent seven years together here in recovery, and uh, and the lessons that were learned in that period of time, I've carried on to in my entire life. The way I look at things now, one, because of recovery, but two, because of that relationship. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, how old are you now, Theo? Man, I'm 67. Yeah, I'm 51 years old. I showed you my head earlier. I'm you losing did. my hair. You did. Uh, my knees hurt all the time. I've had back surgery. My back hurts all the time, and I'm lucky to have all of it. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, she passed away at 32 years old, and I've never, I believe me, I want to bitch about losing my hair. I want to be angry that I'm in pain all the time, but the truth is the perspective that gave me is yes. is I'm lucky to be losing my hair. Bless. I'm lucky to be having the pain that I'm having. And one day, now from losing my parents years later, I've realized this pain that I'm in now, I will want to be in this little bit of pain. As big a deal as it is now, one day soon, I'll look back at this and say, hey, I just want to get back there. I just want to get back to where I could still function. Mm-hmm. Um, so again, there's, there's, uh, that's coming in my life, and it's part, it's a part of life, but it's not here today. Today, um, well, I'll get there too. So I spent uh, that time with her. About five years after that, I got remarried. The marriage didn't go well. Um, my back was. Uh, I went through a surgery. I made decisions. I had started a business. I had a lot of success. I had made a lot of good. I, 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 I had made a lot of good decisions in a row, um, and I made a decision to go on uh, painkillers for six months prior to my surgery because I needed to do something. I had to get to work. The business couldn't be without me, and it was a business that I loved. And I had heard for years in the rooms that. Um, that uh, people got separated from the program because of uh, medication. No, because of anger towards uh, you know meetings and personalities, and, and I knew to be on guard with that stuff. That wasn't where I was, so I didn't think that would happen. It doesn't matter how it happens. You know, mine was I got busy at work. It was I had two girls in college. I had this business I started. I had this new wife. I had these response. I had this life that Narcotics Anonymous, that the work I'd put in had made possible. I had this perspective on life. I was I was living a dream. I was I was you know out living life and and I got away from the very thing that gave me that life. And I hear it so many times. So it doesn't matter. I know now that I have to be. And that's why I say I stop when I have a good idea. I stop when I have a bad idea because I don't know which one is which. I have no idea which one is which. My life has proven that to me. And that's okay that I don't know. I just need to sit and process it and bring other people in that have had experience in different areas and say, hey, this is what I'm thinking because I can guarantee you any one of the women that were in Kelly's life that carried me through her death, literally picked me up and carried me through her death, I have them in my network. I would have went to any one of them and said, hey, I'm thinking about uh, going on opiates for, for six months. One of them would have slapped me upside the head and said, you're going to do what? At least. And here, I never thought to ask them. See, it's not the scary part that I made the decision. The scary part to me, again, it's always the thought patterns around it, is it never crossed my mind to ask one of them. Right. I was so overconfident in my right. ability to handle anything or my my need to handle all this stuff that I had taken on myself that it never crossed my mind to ask one of these people um, that loved me, that I loved, hey, what do you think of this? Um, and as a result, I went on those, uh, those pills for uh, that six months and, and I think I abused them within three days because yes. I'm a big guy. 
And well, big guy, Theo. I'm not a little guy. He, he gave me five. Well, I'll yeah. get to that part, but that's not the, what I was thinking at the time. What I was thinking at the time was, I'm a big guy. Right. You know, I, well, I just ate some food, so that's going to dampen this. I got to take another one because yeah. within three days, I was taking twice as many as prescribed. Sure. Within, uh, within a month, I was getting double the pres- prescription from another doctor. Within mm-hmm. two months, I was buying them off the street. Within three, I'd switched over to OxyContin because... Obviously, the Percocet is, is is they're they're messing with me sexually. So I got a, I found every reason in the world to, and uh, and then literally my thinking then was I just can't do anything else. It's just I got to stay, you know, I, and which is crazy because I was already abusing the pills, and uh, and I had my surgery, and I kicked the pills directly after the surgery, um, mm-hmm. just like I said that I would because I was out of pain, mm-hmm. and that's what made sense. But somewhere in that period of time, I knew I had screwed up. I knew I had relapsed. Uh, yeah. And that other thought comes in, which is, I am an Good addict. Shame. No, the thought, well, are you really going to get clean again mm-hmm. without using your drug of choice? And I had no defense against that thought. That's the thought that always got me in trouble. It was always that made sense to me. Again, if I was thinking that badly to put the pills in me in the first place, imagine how badly I was thinking after they're running through yeah. my system. Mm-hmm. Um so I didn't openly do that, but I decided, uh, you know, crabs and beer sounds good. So I'd already relapsed, so I might as well have some, oh, some yeah. beer with my crabs. And mm-hmm. and it turns out I can't stand beer with crabs. I actually prefer Coca-Cola, but that didn't matter. And uh, and then from there started uh, the, the, the relapse itself lasted six years. And for six years, mm-hmm. um, other than the period of time directly after surgery, uh, for maybe two weeks while I kicked the I'm pills. I'm yeah, for about uh, for that six years, I could not get a single day yeah. clean. I remember when you came back in. Yeah, I would come to meetings, and uh, I don't know if you knew this, Theo, but I would cry leaving the meetings because I knew I was going to get high. I was sitting in those chairs that I sat in for so long and, and believed, and I did not believe. I did not believe I could make it back. I did not believe it could work for me again. The disease of addiction, my way of thinking was all over me. Um, I called a hot, wet blanket. I would be sitting in the meeting, and it was like somebody picked up a blanket and mm-hmm. threw it over top of me, and the only way I could get it off was to go get high. It's the only way I could get it off of me. And uh, and I would cry inside of those meetings until I got in my truck, and I would drive out, head down from St. Bart's, down Frederick Road, and I can go right to Catonsville, or I can go left to the city, and I would make the left every, every time, time, and I would scream at myself, literally out loud, what are you doing? Go home. Why mm-hmm. can't you go? I could not go home. And I lived like that for uh, for six years, but that last year, uh, at least I was going to meetings. Even though that was happening, that last that last year, I was going to a group called Living a Dream on, uh, on Tuesday nights at 9 o'clock, and I was going to that meeting because I felt no judgment there. I walked into right. that meeting in right. all you you know that meeting mm-hmm. in all kinds of different state of disarray, and uh, the home group members there mm-hmm. would take one look at me, kind of make a feel or read how I was that night, and they'd say, "Come on in, Bill, have a seat." And if they had to help me to my seat, they would help me to my seat, and uh, and they'd give me a hug and they'd say, "Keep coming back." Mm-hmm. And uh, and I went to that meeting for well, I'll put it to you this way: I now have seven and a half years. Uh, clean again and I've been going to that meeting for eight years mm-hmm. so for six months every Tuesday I went to that meeting even though I couldn't stay clean even though I walked into that meeting at one point and again this is after two girls through college two successful businesses bought a house forgot the reason I'm telling the story and I didn't need step work for any of that 
to happen. I didn't need a you know, four-step. I didn't need to work a four-step or work on my character defects to achieve all that. What I needed to work a four-step for, which I now understand in a 16, is to sustain all that, is to see myself coming to know that when I have a good idea, I need to pause. That's what I learned. And it was a very hard-fought lesson. Yes, indeed. Hard-fought lesson to learn. Um, and the truth is, I'm still learning. Oh, That's yeah. the other lesson that I learned is at no point can I get overconfident against the disease of addiction. It's cunning. It's baffling. It's insidious. They say that in their literature. They say it at meetings. They, they say it in the parking lot. And I kind of believed it. I knew if I was using it, it was cunning and baffling. What I know now is, is it will find a way to get me alone. It yes. will find a way to get me by myself. It will find a way to convince me, even with all my perspective, even with my successes, even with my you know good intentions. What's the? I heard that at a meeting, I think, uh, three years ago. It's the first time the road to hell is paved with good intentions. Mm -hmm. It's the first time I ever, under, and that's not a narcotics that I'm saying, that's a saying I've heard like a nursery rhyme since I was a kid. And in that meeting that day, I remember my shoulders dropping and thinking, oh my gosh, because I didn't have any bad intentions leading up to my, to my relapse. I did not, let me make this clear, I did not wake up with 12 years clean and decide to go get high. And I still did. That's how powerful the disease of addiction mm -hmm. is in me. Mm -hmm. um, I didn't do it the way I saw the. I didn't get mad at meetings. Screw this meeting. I didn't. I didn't hold the, the, uh, the, the meetings in in disdain. I didn't, you know, stay. Away. I simply lost focus, you know, for an extended period of time, and let a lot of outside issues pull me away from the thing that keeps me safe, that treats the disease. And I've done a lot of work on that um, since being back. Since being back, much like the first time. Um, I had to do a lot of things. If anybody is listening to this and they're struggling and they're, and they're in relapse, I had to do a lot of things that made absolutely no sense to me whatsoever. I stopped working. Mm -hmm. I, re I wasn't making any money. I was going to pill doctors. I was selling it. I stopped doing that, um, which doesn't make any sense because at the time, I had to pay bills. I had I had to pay my rent. I had to do all this stuff in my that money was never going for that stuff anyway. But I had to, you know. And uh, so I stopped working. And uh, and the reason you say you remember that is because I was seen because I was in three meetings a day every day for uh, probably the first year and a half. My life became getting to meetings. Um, I was very lucky in the fact that uh, that one of the properties that I had bought when when I was cleaning during that twelve years was down in Pigtown, and I had one tenant in, not another. And I left my then wife in the house we had bought in Elk Ridge, and I went to Pigtown. And for the first six, eight months, I used in Pigtown. Um, but that during that period of time, I also was going to meetings. And, uh, and I charged that guy $125 a week. And from that $125 a week, for the next year and a half, that's what I lived off of. And that was enough money, and I got food stamps. Again, two girls through college, two successful businesses, a house, uh, another investment pro, and and I got on food stamps. And that money, and those food stamps fed me, and that money got me back and forth to meetings. Um, and the most amazing thing once again happened in those meetings because uh, 
because I see a lot of people that struggle going to meetings. I see people that I came around with originally that struggle going to meetings because of all the young kids and they don't know what they're doing and whatever, wherever they are. Um, And I see them struggle. And then I see a lot of young kids come in, have a hard time buying into this thing called Narcotics Anonymous or what needs to. And and that was when I walked back into the rooms of Narcotics Anonymous. I think I was, what am I, 51 now, seven and a half years. I was 42, 43 years old. And there was a lot of young people. And I remember very distinctly thinking to myself, what the, Mm -hmm. what the hell am I going to learn from this bunch of kids? What do these kids have to teach me? And they answered that question. I still get emotional. It's everything. Everything. Sorry. Just like the first time. I sat in meetings and I observed people and I watched people. And as uncomfortable as it was, I knew not to hold it in judgment. I knew it had worked for me. And... uh I didn't know how it was going to work this time, but I remember very distinctly making a couple friendships and listening to a couple conversations out in the parking lot and uh, and making some con- connections. There was one girl in particular that kind of reminded me of Kelly, my first wife, not mm-hmm. not in looks or anything like that, just kind of in her in her naivete, and and uh, and her name was Emzy, and uh, and Emzy one day was distraught. She was distraught over this cat. She had lost her cat, and the cat had had gotten killed and she was I think coming up on a year clean and she was talking about using it she felt like using because she had lost this cat and almost in a judgmental way I remember thinking Jesus MZ don't you realize don't you know if you just stay clean if you just stay clean it's going to be okay and uh, and I think I had 60 days at the time and uh, and a couple, couple days later that hot wet blanket got over me again and I was leaving a meeting and I was at that point where I could make a right or I could make a left. And I heard this voice say, hey, Bill, don't you know if you just stay clean? If you just stay clean, it's going to be okay. So I started hearing that voice again. At first, it was not pointed at me. It was pointed at MZ. It was pointed at Carl. It was pointed at Jesse. It was pointed at all these other people that I started to root for. I couldn't believe in me. I had failed so many times. I had hurt so many people. I had done so much damage. My daughter, Jesus, what my daughter had to see that I, that I knew she never had to see because she was originally five when I got all these things that I'd done and these feelings that I'd hurt and these these trusts that I had betrayed and and uh, I had lost the ability to believe that I could do it. But I did believe they could. And it was from believing that they could I call them my restoration of sanity. I call them my second step because they reintroduced me to the voice of recovery that lives inside of me. Just like the disease of addiction, that way of thinking that I talk about all the time. Also, there is a voice of recovery that I've learned here that says, Bill, it's going to be okay. Bill, you don't have to look at it that way. I tap into that voice as loudly and as often as I possibly can. And it's taken me years to practice it. But like anything else, I was thinking a lot about that today is is the discomfort that I felt when I first walked into the rooms of the narcotics amount, the discomfort anybody's going to feel walking into a church, into a home, into a, into a, a family that they've never been a part of before. There's going to be a discomfort. It's not exclusive to addicts. It's, it's exclusive to the human condition, to the human experience. It's going to happen. If you want to be there, and you want to find beauty in it, and you want to partake in it, and you want to 
then join it, then buy into it, and uh, and that's what I did, and and that's why it's important to go to a lot of meetings. It's not necessarily. I heard a guy not too long ago, and this again um, is a guy that I've never cared for, never cared for the guy. Just not a, you know, I, I fight that off, but really, you know, there's just certain people, and it's like, oh, Christ, this guy's talking again, and then I battle with myself to listen. Well, this day, uh, I battled myself, and I won the battle, and I listened, and he said the following. He said, some days it doesn't matter what's said in the meeting. Right. It doesn't matter who's talking in the meeting. It doesn't matter who's sharing the meeting. Some days, it's just my willingness to walk in that door. And I remember saying, what did he just say? What did, because that is the truth. The truth is to get to a meeting, I need to get in my truck to go to a meeting. I need to at some point at the, uh, during the day decide I'm going to go to a exactly. meeting. At some point during the day when I wake up, I have to, my, my thought patterns have to go to, hey, I'm going to go to that meeting today. And then it goes to who I'm going to see at that meeting. And hey, does, it, does that person celebrate? And again, the transformation is in the way of thinking. That's why, you know, I, I go to a lot of meetings still to this day. That's why when you when you said about this podcast, that's why I look forward to it all day. It changed everything today for me. My yes. entire day was built around getting here. Mm-hmm. Sorry, I was a little you know, at, at 6.30, but I got here by 7 because yeah, I still you, suffer. Yeah. But, uh, but that is the transformation that happens in recovery. It's the transformation. Let me correct myself. It's the transformation that's happened for me in recovery. Um. One of the very first things I learned in recovery is to speak from my own experience. Um, I come from a place of everybody telling me what to do, parole officers, probation officers, family, parents, and they weren't even wrong, as it turns out. As it turns out, they were right. But still to this day, when anybody tells me what to do, I get defiant. Sure. Um, that's your it's, nature. It's in my nature to get defined. That's your nature. Even if I know it's the word, don't tell right. me what to do. I'm not going to, right? So um, so the one of the first meetings I went to in Narcotics Anonymous, and I was talking to a, a woman named Karen, and I said, well, well, then I had to do this, and I had to do that. She said, I don't give a shit what you do. This is what I did. And I've always remembered that. There's, see, there's certain mm-hmm. things at these different meetings. I don't know where they're going to come from. I don't know who they're going to come from. Right. But that's the importance of... And what I pray, everybody, the open-mindedness. You know, one is the willingness that that gentleman talked about, of the willingness to get to the meeting. Yes. But then once I'm there, the ability to open my mind to, it doesn't matter who's speaking at that meeting. It doesn't matter who's speaking again at that meeting or what negative stuff or what age the, the attendee, the average age of the attendees or anything. None of that matters. What matters is I got my ass to the meeting, that I sit in that chair, and if I don't like what's going on or what's being shared, I have the ability to try to help that meeting. I'll be of service to that meeting. And more importantly than anything, to help myself in the process, to fight through whatever that same right. negative voice I lived with for years, I listened to for years, that's what the step work. And that's why I go back to the 12 years I was here and the inability to maintain you know, maintain what was going on in my life, all the good things, was I now look back and it's very clearly an example of I didn't know how. I didn't have the tools. You ever try to get a screw out of the wall and not have a drill? Right. I will I will bloody my I will Mm. get that I will get that screw out of that wall. But if I had a drill I could just back it out of the damn wall. 
I will find a way with a hammer. The wall will be busted. There will be blood <laughs> everywhere. I will get that screw. That's in my nature too. You put it, me to a task. I will. I will. But what I learned here is I don't have to do that. I can simply go out, ask somebody, "Hey, you got a drill?" Right. And back the back the screw out of the wall. And I use that because that that little picture that I have in my mind because that's intrinsic in me all the way through my recovery is is I now have the tools to deal with situations that I didn't have before I now see myself coming and it's not again it's not in the form that I thought it would because I'm a smart guy I'm an intelligent fella and and I heard a lot of people talk about the step work and I heard a lot of people's take on different steps and I and and there's that old saying, you can't get this thing through osmosis. And Theo, I swear I almost did. I swear to God, I almost did. Until I actually went through the steps myself, as suggested with a sponsor. And I found that I didn't find anything I thought I would find. That they didn't mean anything like those other people had talked about. They're very personal. Um, they're very personal to me. And, uh, and when I went through them, as suggested with a sponsor... Mm-hmm. The change was was uh, I can honestly say the change has been incredible. You know, I have found. I talked earlier about the the purpose and direction that drug use gave me. How everything from that day that I used changed, um, and that was my purpose and direction. Everything centered in the use of drugs and alcohol. Well, now today my life has purpose and direction again, and everything is centered in the tools that I've found here in Narcotics Anonymous, the ability to maybe, you know, shine some light on somebody else's life and say, hey, you know, where I work now is, is centered in recovery. Where I live now is centered in recovery. My social events are, are, are not because I can't function out in the real world. It's not why. It's because I believe I went through that that hell and was brought back and the realization I have worth. I have value. My experience, even that six years out using when I couldn't get a day clean, That's this is how powerful. Now, we talked a lot about how powerful the disease of addiction is. This is how powerful recovery is. That wasted time, that wasted six years, that horrible things that I did and I said and, and the disappointment, all those things that my daughter saw, all those things I looked at as the shame and the guilt, those things have value today in recovery. Those experiences that I went through can now possibly touch or help somebody else mm -hmm. they certainly helped me now that i'm back in recovery now that i have my feet solid on the ground it was a long way and a hard road to get to where i can look back and say that but i can honestly say that those things serve me today and i think it's kind of my job is to take all the experiences and this is not exclusive but once again to to addicts at 51 years old through life's ups and downs um I believe that's my job is to take all this information, all these tragedies, all these uh, ups and hills and valleys mm -hmm. and personalities. Oh, I love it. That's that's the part I love about recovery is the personalities and and uh, and use all that mm -hmm. to have a good day, to use all that to uh, to enjoy my life, because that's not the ultimate goal. The ultimate goal is to enjoy my life. I thought I found that in drugs for a long time, and then they turned on me. Um, I thought I found that in in buying a couple houses and having a successful business, and that you know separated me from this this thing you know that kept me safe. Today, I'm as safe as I've ever been because I know less than I've ever known. If that makes any sense, I realize 
just how much I still have to learn. I I realized just how teachable I need to remain. I, I realized at 51 years old, the dumber I am, the better. You know, when I walk into a meeting of Narcotics Anonymous and I sit down in the chairs of Narcotics Anonymous, it is my church. It is my place of prayer. It is my place to open my mind. It is my place to listen to others. It is my place to find center. Um, and it's it's always been that place for me. And uh, and if you're struggling getting to meetings, if you're struggling with any part of anything with meetings, uh, the seeing the, the beauty in it, um, keep going. That's why they say keep coming back. Because if you keep coming back, and uh, I believe you will see the beauty in it. Thank you, Theo. Yes, I would like to thank you, Bill, for sharing your story on this episode of One Day at a Time in Recovery in Baltimore. And listeners, I would like to thank you for being with us. I'm Theo Hill. Let's talk again soon.